For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. When your day is long and the night, the night is yours alone, And when you're sure you've had enough of this life, well, hang on. Don't let yourself go, because everybody cries and everybody hurts sometimes. If you're old enough, you know the song. If you're young enough, you probably know the song because your parents have tortured you with it. But REM in the early 90s captured, captured what is so true and I think that song was so powerful in its day because it actually articulated it actually spoke the reality of our life everybody hurts sometimes but for us as Christians everybody hurts poses particular challenges see there are preachers out there that will tell you that if you come to Jesus Jesus will solve all your problems No pain, no suffering, health, wealth. And they've got to get out of jail card free, don't they? If you have enough faith. And so if you don't have this perfect life, it's actually your fault, your lack of faith. But when you think about it, and you think about how Paul has unpacked the incredible story of God's grace 
through Romans 1 to 8, you could quite easily get to the point where you think, actually, I'm, I'm justified, I've been redeemed, I've been brought back to God, not only declared righteous before him, declared right, in right relationship, I'm actually his child. We've been given adoption, sonship. So surely, if God's about bringing this new heavens and this new, if God's about actually reversing all this stuff, I should have a good life. For those of us who are familiar with the Bible's teaching, you'll know that that's not actually right. But in our hearts, pain and suffering can cause us real problems. It can make us doubt God's love, it can make us actually doubt that perhaps we are the real thing, that our faith is legitimate. But Paul in Romans 8 has actually been answering this question, the whole question of what does the legitimate, what does the real Christian life look like? And in the first bit, verses about 1 to about 15, he's dealing with the issue of, surely if I was a Christian, I wouldn't still struggle with sin. And you saw last week that Paul's answer was, no, the fact that you struggle with sin is actually evidence of God's work in you. So keep fighting. The victory's been won. And now he turns to the second great challenge, that of suffering. If you've got your Bibles, have a look at verse 15 and 16 of chapter 8. Let me read for us. Paul writes that the spirit that we receive does not make us slaves so that we live in fear again. Rather, the spirit we receive brought about our adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Now, Abba there has got nothing to do with the Scandinavian pop band. Uh, has everything to do with the Aramaic word that means dad. So it's that closest relationship that a child would actually speak to their father. And the Spirit helps us cry to God, Dad, Dad. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. What a great promise. Paul here is outlining that God's not our master. He's our Father. He doesn't rule by fear. He doesn't rule by law. He rules by love through grace. We are heirs with God. We are co-heirs with Christ. And what will we inherit? What's waiting for us? Well, now in Ephesians 1 verse 3, we, we inherit every spiritual blessing. Everything that can be given to us has been given to us in Christ. And then in the future, our inheritance will be that we will reign with Christ. So I used to think that uh, when we get to heaven, so I'll be lucky to clean it. I'll be the guy that cleans up after the rest of you, uh, you know, puts out the rubbish. And, so, and I'll be quite happy about that, you know. And there's a, there's a psalm that says, you know, better to be a, a doorman in the temple of the Lord than live a thousand years, I think it is, in the, in the tents of wickedness. I sort of thought, you know, doorman, that's yeah, not bad. I could deal with that. But here Paul is actually saying, that our inheritance in Christ is not that we get to clean up after everyone in heaven. We reign with him. Romans 5.17, we reign with Christ. 
But that's future. What about now? Look at verse 17. Look at Paul's step by step. He says, if we're children, we're children. If we've got the spirit, we're children. If we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share his suffering, in order that we may also share his glory. Glory awaits, but suffering, Paul writes, is inevitable. Now, Paul here isn't saying if you suffer enough, you somehow earn your way into heaven. But he is saying that suffering is actually the mark of the Christian life. It's the evidence of real faith. And not just the every, everyday, ordinary kind of suffering that everyone faces because we live in a fallen world. But he actually says that sometimes being a Christian will actually make things worse. In your face to the prosperity preachers, hey, come to Jesus, he will make your life worse. Why? He's upfront about it. He says to his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and we know what they did to Jesus, they will persecute you also. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There is a level of suffering that is unique for those who want to follow Christ. If you are serious about your faith, it will set you at odds with the world. But if it hates you, bear in mind that it hated Jesus first. This is a family characteristic. You know, when you look at kids and you can work out who the parents are and they all look alike and all that kind of stuff, what's the family characteristic in Jesus' family? We suffer. Jesus himself is the model. He's in glory. He has ascended over all things. What was the path? Through death and resurrection to glory. What is our path? Through death and resurrection to glory. It's the family characteristic. Now, I don't know about you, but I find suffering I don't think anyone smiles at suffering. I don't think anyone thinks, oh, look, it doesn't really matter. It's this gap. We have a hope. This is what it could be. This is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm longing for. And then there's reality. And so often, that reality falls well short. Parents, we have hopes for children. We have hopes for our own lives, don't we? We have dreams, we have ambitions, we have goals. We long for things to be particular ways. We long for relationships to work out in the ways that we would like them to. We long to get out of bed and not ache in the knees, in the back, in the neck. Uh, Some of you will know what that is like. We long to turn on the television and not hear about the latest atrocity, not hear about earthquakes devastating towns in Italy, not hearing about atrocities committed across the Middle East and around the world. What is your reaction? 
Some doubt. Where is God in this? Some deny. Christians fall prey to this one. I've read of Christians, I've heard Christians say of their cancer diagnosis, no, God has healed me. Only to find that they die just a few months later. More characteristic, we react with determination. There's reality and there's hope and my work and my prayers and all the things I'm going to do is going to lift it. And can I say, work and pray, that's a good thing, it's a right thing. A Christian shouldn't be fatalistic about suffering. We should strive, we should pray, we should take every option. But sometimes we do these things depending on ourselves. Sometimes we do these things saying that if I tick all the right boxes, it'll work out. And it doesn't. Many of us will know that pain. And sometimes that approach just makes it worse. Where is God? And it is so easy to slip then into despair when you bring hope down to reality and say, this is just as good as it is going to get. Someone talked about finding a tolerable level of pain and calling that life. How do we respond? How does Paul speak of suffering? He says this incredible statement. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Part of me wants to say, are you for real? Don't you know my pain? I know many of you. I know many of the things that you face, the pain in your hearts, the pain in your lives, Honestly, how does that make you feel? This guy lives in a parallel universe. He does not know what it's like. Verse 35. Paul lists his pain. Trouble. Hardship. Persecution. Famine. Nakedness. Danger sword. He could go on. You can read at the end of 2 Corinthians his list where he boasts of his suffering and his weakness. This man knows what we know, that everybody hurts. And still he says that no matter what we face in the here and the now, what awaits us cannot be touched And it transforms the present. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine you've been given a job. Okay, and for the next year, your job is seven days a week, 18 hours a day, to turn up to this nice little rock pit. And you're given a little hammer, and your job is to make big rocks into little rocks. And for every rock that you break, there's more to break, and it seems to be completely pointless and meaningless. How do you approach that job? Now, let me give you two scenarios. If the paycheck at the end of the year is going to be $10,000, do you bounce out of bed? Oh, great, another day at the rock pit. What difference would it make 
if the paycheck was not 10000 but $100 million. Now, I know you're all righteous people. You're all sitting there going, no, the money is not the issue, Cameron. Uh, it would change it, wouldn't it? <laughs> It'd totally change it. You'd be there looking forward to this thing and it would change your experience in the present. It's not that we just are in a situation where it's, you've got to get through the bad stuff so the good stuff is coming. But I've got to suck it up now. What is coming is so good. It is so good that it actually changes what is actually happening now. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, some say of temporal suffering, that's suffering in the here and the now, that no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven once attained, once we get there, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. How can you say that? How can you say that even our worst agony will be transformed into glory? The Lord Jesus, resurrected, still had his wounds, didn't he? The signs of his greatest agony are the signs of his glory. The signs of his glory. But Paul doesn't actually go that way. Paul actually addresses this question of, well, on what evidence he goes, not to Jesus, he could, but he goes to our experience. When he's approached by people who would challenge him, as Karl Marx would challenge him, to say, you're just offering the pie in the sky and the die. You know, religion is the opiate of the people. It's the opiate of the masses just to satisfy them and keep them under control with this promise of a future that is without pain and suffering so that they just endure pain and suffering better here and now. That was Karl Marx. How would Paul answer him? He says three things. He says creation groans. Creation, he says in verse 19, waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. He personifies it. Creation was uh, was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Subject to frustration, bondage to decay, creation groans and we groan. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. What's Paul saying? He says, you know in your heart that this is not how it's meant to be. You hear about earthquakes in Italy and you go, this is wrong. Why is it that you stand at the grave of a loved one And you rage against the dying of the light. Why is it that we go, this is, this is wrong. This is not how it's meant to be. Because every other person who has ever walked the planet has died. So why do we think this is wrong? Why do we think it's wrong? We should be used to it. 
It should just be normal. Oh, another person died. Okay, that happens all the time. But Paul points to our experience, our groaning and creation's groaning and says, you know you were made for something more. You know that this is not how creation is meant to be. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, God has put eternity into our hearts and deep down we know that the best is yet to come. Now Paul could have gone to other bits to make his point, but he goes to our groaning and he says the best is yet to come and that's hope. The gospel is about future hope. Jesus didn't deny that. Paul didn't deny that. It's not everything now. It's a hope that is still future. But we have the, we have the Spirit. And the Spirit is a guarantee. The Spirit is a down payment. The Spirit is a first sip of an extraordinary vintage. But we are in the here and the now, awaiting the end of groaning. So how do we respond? When there is this gap between hope and reality, what is the Christian called to do? One writer said, we live in the desert. We live in the desert. This is the Christian experience. The desert between hope and reality. We know that our hope is sure. We know that our hope is certain. But our reality remains. We have the foretaste of the Spirit that gives us just a glimpse. We have the promise of the gospel that founds our hope in Christ and so we know. But we live in the here and the now with the pain and the suffering, the heartache, the longing that things might be different, dealing with the sickness that we wish we pray for healing. We deal with the relationship that we long for reconciliation and just wonder how it can happen. We deal with the, fa- the frustrations and impotence of life. The Christian is called to live faithfully in the desert. In the desert, David cried out, You God are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Our situation will not provide what we need. God alone can provide what we need. And it is in the desert that we truly learn this. It's in the desert that Moses met God at Sinai. It's in the desert for 40 years that Israel learned that their God provided. It's in the desert for those 40 days that Jesus prepared for his ministry. God takes us through pain and suffering into the desert where we find that it is God alone who can provide for us. 
What does Paul draw us to? What two things as we get towards the end of our passage? Firstly, he draws us to the fact that God has not left us alone. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Your rod and staff, they comfort me because you are with me. And Paul here doesn't go to Psalm 23. He goes to the fact that the Spirit is with us. In the same way, he writes in verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes with for us through wordless groans. I don't know if you've been there. When you've been in a situation and you honestly don't know what to pray for. Everything is closed in. Your pain and suffering threatens to overwhelm. You can't see hope. Easy to despair. But here, God promises that the Spirit, the Spirit who searches our hearts, the Spirit intercedes for us before God. He speaks. Maybe sometimes, though, it's not that we're overwhelmed in the situation. It's just that we have a particular vision of what blessing looks like. I don't know if you've prayed these prayers. (coughs) God, this is my problem. This is the solution. You're responsible for getting from here to here. Do you you pray prayers like that? I, I often am tempted to go to God thinking that I actually know what's best. And generally when I'm hurting, what's best is that the hurt goes away. Do you pray those prayers? What it actually shows, if you do, like me, is that you possibly don't see that God is there in the desert with you. That God couldn't possibly bless you in the desert. You need to be at the oasis. You need to be in the promised land. You need healing. You need the pain to stop. And then God could bless you. But what this is telling us is that God is with us in our pain and God is at work in us through our pain. Gethsemane, I think, is the best model for prayer. What does Jesus pray? If there is any other way, make the pain go away. But not your will, but mine. Do we in our prayers close down God's options and then we get disappointed when he answers our prayers in a different way? Or do we perhaps need to start praying, God, you are God, you know the best way. Work what you will in me. The Spirit intercedes. Have you noticed actually, what does the Spirit do? He groans. Who else has been groaning in this passage? Creation has been groaning. We've been groaning and God, his spirit, groans. I think he is stressing that he is with us in our pain. If we ever think God is distant, God doesn't understand, Romans 8 tells us that the spirit 
groans for us. The Spirit groans with us. And at the cross, Christ plumbed the depths of human suffering. Don't ever think that God is not with you in the desert. But what's the other thing that he comforts us with? He's with us and he is completely in control. Look at verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What does all things cover? Does all things cover our pain? Yes. Our suffering? Yes. Our frustration? Yes. Our disappointment? Yes. Our sin? Yes. All things covers all things. And God is at work for our good. One of the problems with this verse is that we then, we have an idea of what that good is, don't we? We know what that looks like. With pain and suffering, it's pain and suffering going away. But verse 29 tells us what that good is. He tells us that the ones that God foreknew, the ones that he related to, not just he knew about, but he knew relationally, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He predestined, he determined that they would be reworked, rebuilt, remade into the image of Christ. That is what God is doing. That is the good that God is achieving. God is not promising us material success. God is not promising us career ambitions, you know, achieved. He's not promising us all the relationships that we long for, the acclaim, the power, the security. He's not promising us that at all. He is promising that he is at work in every situation of your life. The good, the bad and the ugly to make you, to remake you into the image of Christ so that he might be the first among many brothers and sisters. And he does that. He does that for your good. This is the highest good, that God's glory would be seen through us as people see Christ in us. Is that what you think of when you think of good? I think sometimes we are too small. But the other reassurance that we can take from this, there is so much we could say, is that if we are in the desert, the God who foreknew, predestined, chose, justified, glorified, that God... If you are in the desert, you are there because he has ordained it. And he has ordained it because it is the best thing for you. Now, brothers and sisters, that is a hard truth. But the option is worse. You're in the desert because God is not in control. 
So you can't trust that he's at work in this. No. The Bible tells us that God is sovereign and he is at work in everything and he is at work in everything precisely because he determines our steps. Job prayed after losing family, health, prosperity, reputation. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He doesn't say the Lord gave and circumstance took away. He doesn't say the Lord gave and sin took away. He doesn't say the Lord gave and Satan took away, even though even though we do see in Job that Satan is the agent who does it. But Satan's action does never countermands God's sovereignty. But Christian, we have an incredible privilege that nothing is outside his control. That in our pain, in our suffering, God is there with us. In the desert, he is there to bless us and nothing can separate us from his love. More on that next week. Let's pray. Father, we do, we do thank you. You know our pain. You know each and every one of us. You know what is going on in our lives, what is going on in our heads, and our hearts. You know the burdens that we bear because, Father, your spirit lives in us. He intercedes for us. He groans for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we are not outside your will when we suffer, that your will covers even our suffering, And you are at work in it and through it to give us glory with Christ as we reflect his image more and more. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters today. I ask that you would comfort them with this truth, that you would help them to see the perspective that the gospel of grace gives on suffering, that our security is firm, that we are yours and nothing can take us from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.